Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth uh, here flying solo today. John Vecchione is on uh, vacation, but uh, I have been relying on several of my colleagues here at the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, this week to talk about uh, some of the uh, really active things that have been happening this month at the U.S. Supreme Court and around the country. And so uh, what I wanted to talk about in this segment is the Supreme Court case that just came down in West Virginia v. Environmental Protection Agency. And here to do that, I have my colleague, Senior Litigation Counsel at NCLA, Richard Samp. Rich, thank you for joining us on Administrative Static. Well, it's my pleasure. Good to talk with you. So, Rich, you uh, uh, you and, and Brian Rosner from uh, NCLA were the, the folks who had drafted uh, NCLA's amicus brief uh, in this case. Uh, I might have a couple questions about about that later, uh, but let's just start for our audience. Uh, what did the court decide, and and why is this uh, important? Well, the court today put very important rein on the power of administrators, federal government. Congress passed the Clean Air Act, which gave EPA some authority to try to cut down on. Uh, emissions from power plants, but it didn't really uh, say anything to suggest that uh, uh, that EPA had broad authority to basically totally restructure the power industry. Well, that's what the Obama administration tried to do. It basically adopted regulations which would have essentially uh, uh, required power companies to shut down all of their coal-fired plants and eventually replace them with uh, renewable sources like wind power, for example. And uh, the, what the court held was that was not at all a plausible interpretation of uh, what uh, Congress intended when it, it adopted the Clean Air Act that essentially uh, this major rewrite of, of uh, or major reorganization of the entire power industry uh, is what uh, the court referred to uh, as a major question. Um, and under the major question doctrine, uh, the court assumes as a matter of statutory interpretation that uh, Congress does not intend to uh, uh, have these sort of major rewrites unless uh, it says so explicitly. And since this is this is sort of the so, you, you don't hide elephants and mouse holes kind of concept that we've we've talked exactly. about on the show before. Sure, and and so uh, the re- result was uh, the court said that uh, what uh, EPA did was not authorized under the law. Now. What we were particularly gratified by here was the concurring opinion by uh, Justice Gorsuch, which uh, went a long way to uh, endorse what we said in our brief. 
one of NCLA's concerns all along has been that the uh, uh, that legislative uh, authority ought to be exercised only by Congress, not by administrative agencies. And that's what Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution says. It vests all legislative power in Congress alone. And what we pointed out in our brief was that if the uh, Clean Air Act were interpreted as broadly as EPA suggested, so as to permit uh, uh, EPA to have unbridled authority to do what it wanted to reorganize the power industry, then uh, essentially what the law would be saying was that uh, uh, that we have vested our uh, uh, legislative authority in EPA. We have divested ourselves of our own authority that the Constitution gives to us, and therefore the statute would be unconstitutional. And what Gorsuch said was, that's exactly right, and that's one of the major reasons why we adopt the major questions doctrine, is precisely to avoid those sorts of constitutional questions. Right. So if with this major questions doctrine now, I, I, one of the things that, that there was some speculation ahead of time was whether the Supreme Court would use this case to... Uh, to revive or reinvigorate the non-delegation doctrine, uh, you and I had had written a, an article uh, about non-delegation, and and I think uh, for the American Enterprise Institute, it, they put out a book uh, earlier this year. I think they they kind of tried to get it out in time for some of these non-delegation ideas to be considered by the court for this case, uh, if I if I remember the timing correctly. Do do you view what's happening here with the major questions doctrine as a sign? that this is the only form of, of non-delegation doctrine that that the court is is prepared to endorse? Or was there some reason that it did it not need to get to other non-delegation ideas because of how it decided this case? I think much more the latter than the former. There's nothing in the decision that suggests that the court is trying to limit the application of the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, Instead, what the court is saying is we're not going to really ever reach the, the non-delegation doctrine very often because we are strongly inclined to uh, interpret statutes in a way that avoids the non-delegation doctrine. But I don't view that as in any way turning away from uh, enforcement of the non-delegation doctrine. The way the issue would arise would be if Congress had passed a law saying very explicitly, uh, we think that there are major uh, issues facing the uh, power industry, and we don't feel equipped to make those decisions, and therefore we are going to, to explicitly delegate to EPA the authority to make those decisions. And uh, were Congress to write such a law, then uh, then the court would, of course, be forced to address whether or not such a piece of legislation violates the non-delegation doctrine. And I think uh, nothing in today's uh, uh, opinions suggests that the court would back away from uh, finding that such a law uh, does violate Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution. 
So backing up for just a minute. So the, the opinion for the majority was delivered by Chief Justice Roberts. It was joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And Justice Kagan filed a dissenting opinion in which Justices Breyer and Sotomayor joined. And then Justice Gorsuch uh, filed a concurring opinion in which Justice uh, Alito joined. Is there, what's the, what's the major, uh, maybe major isn't the right adjective, what's the, the crux of the dissent's objection to, uh, to the majority here, Rich? Well, what the dissent says is uh, basically uh, this is not the role of the court to be uh, uh, second-guessing uh, the EPA the way it has. As far as their concern, uh, they claim that the majority is backing away from their commitment to textualism, that uh, uh, by applying the major questions doctrine, which in a sense is doesn't follow precisely the statutory language, but rather creates a, uh, a presumption that, uh, that Congress um, doesn't intend to act in a particular way unless it, it provides a clear statement that, uh, that uh, this is uh, basically rewriting the legislation. And I think that uh, both Roberts and Gorsuch had a good response to that, which is basically that uh, that uh, this idea of of uh, uh, the court adopting uh, presumptions about how Congress acts have, uh, has been going on since the beginning of the Republic, and in particular, uh, the clear statement rule is something that has been applied in a lot of different areas. For example. Uh, the court has long assumed, based on uh, ideas of federalism embedded in the Constitution, that uh, before Congress uh, should be assumed to have uh, intended to deprive states of their proper sovereignty, that, um, uh, that there needs to be a very clear statement in the legislation to that effect. So that's, that's really not backing away from... from uh, textualism to to make that kind of assumption because that is uh, an assumption that has that's kind of embedded in the constitution and has been accepted for more than 200 years so so uh, these uh, clear statement uh, rules that uh, that now the the major questions doctrine has been uh, let me back up and say that another way before this decision, there was some doubt as to whether the major questions doctrine was a sort of ambiguity canon that comes into play if a statute isn't isn't clear, much like the Chevron doctrine, uh, or whether it's a clear statement principle saying that this is a kind of statutory interpretation principle that if Congress hasn't hasn't spoken clearly enough, then we're not going to presume that they have have done something. This decision settles that debate, right? It, it it says, look, this should be applied. The major questions doctrine should be applied by the lower courts going forward as a clear statement principle. That's correct. And one of the criticisms of uh, the major questions doctrine is that some people have suggested that uh, uh, what constitutes a major question is too difficult to define. And there perhaps is some validity to that, and that's why I thought that the uh, majority opinion by Chief Justice Roberts did a pretty good job of saying, all right, here is 
uh, here are the criteria that we will apply going forward as to what constitutes a major questions, and, and by doing that, I think he has eliminated a lot of the Hold, hold that thought. We'll be back uh, with more right after this. Welcome back to Administrative Static. My colleague uh, Rich Samp and I were discussing the West Virginia v. EPA case here on Administrative uh, Static, and and Rich, uh, one of the we, we started to talk about this in the last segment uh, a little bit, but one of the things that that sort of administrative state purists, if I can use if I can use that, uh, or maybe it would be anti-administrativist purists, if if uh, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. Uh, might say about this opinion is is wait a minute the the major questions doctrine it's a clear statement rule it says if Congress hasn't spoken clearly then we're not going to uh, interpret uh, readily statutory language to turn over vast amounts of discretion and legislative power uh, to federal agencies but there's a there's a potential implication there that as long as Congress has spoken clearly that it can turn over vast quantities of, of legislative power. What would you say to someone who is concerned that that's the implication here of, of the major questions doctrine as laid out by Chief Justice Roberts uh, in this decision? Well, I have read through the entire decision very quickly this morning, and I see nothing that uh, includes that implication. Uh, yes, he said that... Uh, uh, that under the the um, uh, major questions doctrine, uh, a statute is not going to be interpreted as uh, uh, as deciding a major question unless there is a clear congressional authorization. Uh, but the converse of that argument is not true. It is not true that uh, if that the uh, there is clear congressional authorization that the court would be willing to overlook potential constitutional violations uh, in the statute. For example, if the Congress clearly authorized the uh, agency to have unbridled discretion to do something, uh, uh, that that is a clear violation of the non-delegation. Nothing in Roberts's decision otherwise. Now, I need to be clear, uh, Congress certainly has the power, if it wants, to turn over vast amounts of authority to federal agency. Uh, I, I might not be happy with it, but it would not be unconstitutional so long as Congress spells out exactly how to, how that uh, uh, agency is to exercise its broad authority. Uh, the problem is not that that Congress cannot give lots of power to an agency. The problem is that Congress has to be the one that is establishing the, the rules. And so long as Congress uh, establishes the rules for how an agency can 
forward, uh, there is not a constitutional problem with that. So one of the things that, that folks might be thinking uh, is that when they when they think of other clear statement rules, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but if you think of a clear statement rule like, uh, say, the, the federalism clear statement principle from Gregory V. Ashcroft that essentially says that courts won't readily construe the federal government to be uh, violating state sovereignty uh, if Congress hasn't spoken clearly. But in that case, if Congress does speak clearly, it can violate uh, uh, state sovereignty. So I think that might be one reason why people are concerned that if you think of the major questions doctrine as a clear statement principle, that it may have this converse uh, sort of un so far unspoken side to it. Uh, but I don't know, you may know other clear statement principles where that's where that's not the case, but that's, I think, uh, well, I mean, a that's of a concern. That is certainly a concern. And as a matter of fact, just yesterday, the court issued a decision that uh, was in favor of a veteran. And in ruling for the veteran, uh, they gave it, the veteran the right to sue the state of Texas and a Texas state court. And this that decision really is cutting back on uh, Texas's sovereign authority, but that was a five to four decision, and uh, it is not true that the court gives Congress unlimited power to uh, uh, to uh, uh, cut back on state sovereignty. There have been any number of of uh, decisions from the Supreme Court that says that that certain efforts by Congress to cut back on sovereignty are blatantly unconstitutional. Perhaps Alden is the, the best example of that. That was a case in which uh, which the court held that uh, that the state of Maine um, would not be required to uh, allow uh, suits against the state in uh, in Maine's courts for on an issue that was not based on some constitutional authority. Case yesterday, they said there really is a a strong authority on the part of Congress to organize the armed forces, and that Texas was interfering with that power. But in the absence of such a power, there are real limits on on the power of Congress to cut back on sovereignty. And the other case from this week you're referring to is the Torres v. Texas Department of Public Safety case. That's right. Yes. Now, another thing that folks thought might be happening uh, in the West Virginia v. EPA case is that the court might use this as an opportunity to do something significant with the Chevron deference doctrine. I think one of the reasons that people thought that was that there was an opportunity in a couple of other cases this last month or so. Uh, I'm thinking of American Hospital Association v. Becerra and Empire Health v. Becerra. Uh, both of which were statutory interpretation cases that, that could have involved Chevron and uh, deference and, and really didn't. Uh, and then here, too, the court found a way of resolving the case without getting into Chevron deference, whereas uh, I believe that the court below had looked at this from a Chevron deference uh, perspective, or at least uh, Chevron had been more involved at the D.C. Circuit than it was here. So what what do you make of the court's allergy to to discussing Chevron deference, both in this West Virginia v. EPA case and and these other uh, recent recent cases? What are we to make of that? Well, I think it's 
very clear that Chevron uh, deference is disfavored by the current Supreme Court. Uh, it has been seven years, I believe now, since the court has applied Chevron deference to hold a um, uh, regulatory interpretation of of a uh, disputed federal law. Uh, in recent cases uh, where government had argued in favor of Chevron deference, the the uh, court rules against the, the government without even mentioning Chevron. So to me, that's an indication that the court, uh, in some ways, is allowing Chevron to die slowly. However, the, the problem with that approach is that uh, 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 lower courts are continuing to vigorously enforce Chevron. You mentioned the D.C. Circuit. It regularly applies Chevron to uphold disputed statutes. So I think the court is eventually going to have to address the uh, Chevron issue. And indeed, uh, NCLA has several uh, pending cert petitions that raise the issue. We had thought that the uh, petitions would be pulled on uh, by the end of this term. One of the petitions, uh, a case by the name of a potion, uh, has come up 20 different times for a conference by the court, and the court keeps rescheduling it and putting the case off. Um, so with those two cases uh, still pending before the court, it may well be that by September the court will have uh, agreed to take a case that explicitly addresses whether Chevron should either be totally overruled or at least cut back upon. You said two cases, so a potion would be a potion v. Garland would be one of those, which is NCLA's uh, case challenging the ATF's bump stock regulation. Are, is the other case uh, Buffington v. McDonough, or are you thinking of the Gun Owners of America case? What's the other pending? Well, when I was thinking, case? Of, um, Gun Owners of America is a petition filed by another organization that is almost identical to a potion. I was referring as our second case to case uh, that you mentioned, uh, Buffington versus McDonough, that is a case involving a disabled veteran who was denied three years worth of disability benefits based on the lower court's application of uh, Chevron deference to a statute which, to my mind, clearly favors our client, but even if it uh, thought in any way ambiguous, Chevron doesn't apply, and instead the opposing rule of statutory construction called the pro-veteran canon ought to have been applied in order to uh, decide the, the uh, case in favor of a veteran seeking disability benefits. So we, so the, and do I understand correctly, so you said that the court has not acted on those at all. It's just the uh, Justice Breyer is now, I guess we're, uh, if Justice Jackson hasn't been sworn in already, she will be sworn in momentarily. Justice Breyer's term on the Supreme Court uh, is over, and the court, the, the, the term is over, the court hasn't acted, or might they still have that, one final that, list of, I think that's of, correct. of orders? That, that this terms, this 2021-22 term of the court is over, uh, the court is free if it wants to schedule a new conference for some time over the summer. Its usual practice, however, is to delay further conferences until the last uh, week in 
September and then issue a new list of orders um, on the first Monday in October. So I suspect that we will be getting decisions, um, uh, those two petitions, probably in early October. Well, terrific. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what happens what happens with those. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us on Administrative Static, Rich, to talk about this West Virginia VP, VEPA decision, the ramifications of the new major questions doctrine. I certainly hope that you are correct, that, that this will be a clear statement principle that's used to, to knock down uh, agency action that, that does not have clear statutory support uh, from Congress and isn't used in any other way. Uh, but again, thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. Thank you, Mark.